I can't help but feel that Paul's little flub earlier was very thematic <laughs> with the topic of the game. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I guess you could have played it in 2013 if you brought it back. Welcome to the Impromptu Board Gaming Podcast. Today, the panel reviews Anachrony, designed by David Turchi, Richard Amon, and Victor Peter. Later, we'll check to see if the panel can tell the difference between a real game and a fake game. But first, let's see what the panel's been playing lately. And I'm your host, Paul. And I'm here too. I'm David. And I'm Andrew. Alright, games we've been playing recently. I just got a Kickstarter fulfilled. It was Last Light by Roy Kande of the Dice Tower, published by Gray Fox Games. It's supposed to be a 4X game in an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And yeah, I got to play it this week. It was pretty good. I really liked it all around. It's really fast. Yeah, that'd be if you're going to fit a whole 4X game into an hour. Or an hour and a half. It has two things going for it that really make it fast. One is five out of the six actions can be done simultaneously. You play a card, everybody reveals simultaneously, and then you look at their initiative order, whoever the lower number goes first, and then you generally don't need to go in order except for the last couple of cards. So you can just do five out of the six actions simultaneously, and then check around for cleanup, and then move on to the next round. And it's really fast. The second thing is that it's really easy to collect points, and the game is a race to 20 points. So instead of your normal 4X where you maybe explore, build up some resources slash uh, uh, ships, and then you go and fight, you pretty much has to, you, you have to build as you go, and you have to sort of, it's like, continuously make your way to the center and then build your uh, ships and resources and infrastructure as you go. There's no doing one thing at a time. <laughs> you have to do it all at the same time because if someone sits in the middle for too long, they're just going to collect points really fast and there's no way around it. So you have to just meet in there. And, and fighting is really interesting. You don't, you don't fight to the death. Basically, whoever plays the command card moves in, attacks one round, that's it. And if you miss, you miss. If you hit, great. But if you don't, you just move on. <laughs> so then you, you can definitely have multiple ships in the center collecting points all at the same time. And everyone tries to fight and see who gets what they can get from the center. Wait, let me get this straight. So when you attack, your ships lob an assault at someone else's ships. And then everyone's like, all right, that's that. Yeah. <laughs> so usually it's like you roll attack dice both sides roll maybe both sides take loss if it's really long it'll be both sides roll attack dice you and then both sides roll defense dice and then you see who gets hit whatever whatever this is you move attack roll the attack dice and then you're done <laughs> that's it it's just like no harm no foul bye <laughs> Yeah, if you hit, great. If you don't hit, that's it. It doesn't matter. No, no one overthinks it or uh, argues about it. It just you just move on. Every single action is designed to be very short and very quick, and then you just keep moving through. And it can happen where both sides just fail, and you just both sit there and then collect points, and then somebody else comes in and shoots you guys. Is there a benefit to attacking, or are you just doing it to be kind of a, a jerk? Well. So the theme is that this is tens of thousands of years in the future. 
everybody has learned to harness light into usable energy very quickly and very easily. So everybody's racing to the last dwarf star in the galaxy. <laughs> so like for some reason, all of the stars have just stopped working. They all burned out. And then everybody races to the center and then collects light to like get points. And then, so you sit there and you're all trying to collect as much light as possible because it's the last dwarf star before you have to like try to move on to another galaxy and search for other stars. So <clears throat> you just, um, that's, that's it. You get there, you fight, and killing other people's ships means that they can't collect the light and theoretically you can collect more or whatever it is. <laughs> Interesting. So my only question really is you prefaced it by saying it's like a 4X game in an hour. And I've heard like that kind of pitch before. I, Last Light sounds different than the other games, but essentially my thing is that um, usually a 4X game that's made short will call itself a 4X game, but it'll really not... It'll eliminate one or two of the Xs, right? Explore, expand, exterminate, the last X. <laughs> exploit. Exploit, that's it. Yeah, exploit. So... Yeah, I think I think that's still true. The explore is very minimal. Basically, every time you go into a new space, there are some exploration tokens, and you flip them over and you see what you get, and they're random, and that's it. There's not too much to the exploring. The expanding is true because you can collect light from planets that are orbiting the dwarf star. The, let's see... The fighting is real, and that's fine. And then the exploitation, you just pull resources from uh, what you've expanded to. So, yeah, that happens too. So I think they all happen, but they all happen pretty minimally, I guess. So I don't know if that counts as, like, it's balanced throughout. Everything's been truncated. Or do you count that as, like, you don't do too much of anything? Because, you know, the fighting doesn't go over. Yeah, the fighting doesn't go very far. The exploring, you don't explore that much. And then you, I think even the fighting isn't like multiple rounds of fighting. It's one round and you're done. Move on. Yeah, it sounds like the main premise is that scramble to get to the dwarf star. Yeah, you're pretty much scrambling there and then, and then shooting each other as you can. It does sound neat. Cool, sounds cool. Based on your description, it does offer a like a different experience than other board games of its kind. So I'm interested in trying it out later. Yeah, it's pretty quick, which, and it's pretty easy to learn, pretty easy to teach. So I was pretty impressed by those aspects. I feel like sometimes like the reasons we don't play games multiple times is because they're too hard to relearn or teach new people. Like it's such a slog. You just don't come back to it. And you know, this game doesn't have that problem. Actually, one question that came to mind when you mentioned, like, shortened 4X, how would you compare it with the Twilight Imperium Roll and Write? I have not played the Twilight Imperium Roll and Write. But anyways, there's a twi there's Twilight Imperium Roll and Write. I played that first before playing actual Twilight Imperium, and this is a while ago now, but, like, I thought that was a neat, also shorter example. I think that one's probably, like, one and a half hours. That's funny, because that's the length is generally a complaint for a lot of people, because while that is short for a Twilight Imperium game, oh. it's very, very long for a Roll and Write game. That's true. Was it one of? I don't. Again, it's been a while. I don't remember. Yeah, the game's called Twilight Inscription, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. And yeah, there's so many. You get like four sheets of papers to like <laughs> to write on. 
so like right one one thing to speed it up right that's comparable with games is sort of make having things be simultaneous right that's sort of built in with the role and right genre of be simultaneous and a bit more like single player oriented in a way and like i i just i found a lot of fun in you know just exploring the map and like trying to make things work out that way how does combat work in the game um i don't remember okay it's like two people guess what the next number is and then it flips over whoever's closer gets a shot gets a hit Rolling Ride, yeah, Rolling Ride typically doesn't have combat, so I'd be interested if it does, um, how it works, but we can look that up later. Okay, uh, David, what have you been playing lately? Well, what I've been playing recently is a game that I feel like might, well, I don't know if it is, but it has potential to be my game of the year of 2023. Ooh. Uh, yeah, and that is the White Castle. Uh, do they make good burgers or a lot of sliders? White Castle? Yeah, Harold and Kumar show up. <laughs> do Harold and Kumar show up? I mean, yeah, once you, when you teach this game to new players, you got to get those jokes out of the way because they will inevitably happen. You have to call it the White Castle. I don't think you can just call it White Castle. It's not just White Castle, the White Castle. Yeah. It's like the White Castle of all White Castles. Anyway, it's published by Devere Games, and the designer is um, Isra C. J.S. I don't know who these people are. Yeah, it just says J.S. and Isra C. on the box. I guess that's how they want to be known, so that's what I'll call them. Anyway... Uh, this game is, it's its actually a very simple game at its core, but we're talking about games that are hard to teach to new players. This is definitely hard to teach to new players. Um, they will, well, I guess the mechanics themselves aren't difficult, but putting it all together is very, very hard if you're not familiar with like how your games work. And that's also partially why I like, love it so much. The, the theme is you're trying to impress the Emperor, and you do that by... Uh, expanding in three fields, farming, the castle itself, and uh, military. And on your turn, you're going to draft a die. Uh, there's a there's like a high side and a low side to these dice you can draft. And if you get the high side, you'll get more money because you'll place it on spots, and the difference between the spots value and your dice is the money you get. If you take the low value, you'll probably have to pay because if you go under the spots value, you have to pay the difference. But you get a bonus, which is um, your own like personal engine. Ooh. Um, to make it quick, the farmer side generally expands. It gives you repeating actions, like extra materials or bonus actions each turn. The castle side has a bunch of actions on them, and it's how you expand your engine by bringing people into the castle, and um, they start taking the action cards and adding them to your engine. And finally, the military gives you bonus actions when you go there, and gives you end-of-game scoring for all your people in the castle. Hopefully that was succinct enough, because I don't want to get into detail of everything. It would take too long. But the interesting thing is the game is very quick. You just take a die, you do an action. That action might cascade into other actions, but for the most part, you're just putting them in one of those three sectors or on your main board, and then the next person goes. You do this nine times over the course of the game, so there's three... Um, three rounds and three turns per round, so you only get nine turns in the whole game. But um, throughout, the, you know, you want to try to evenly distribute between the three areas. But at the same time, if you focus on one, you might be able to get extra bonuses there. So there's a lot to think about on every turn, even though in general everything is fairly straightforward once you know what's going on. The thing I like about this game the most, which I really want to emphasize, is that there's nothing really here in this game that experienced board gamers would consider new. 
This is a Euro game through and through. It is just exceptionally well done, in my opinion. The, I think, I think the idea of essentially perfecting an idea as opposed to creating a new idea gets lost a little bit with the extreme number of games that come out every year. I think like taking taking a game like a new idea from an eight to a ten, or maybe even eight to a nine doesn't seem like a whole lot when you like look at it like directly, but that little innovation, make, making a game like perfecting a game, can have such a profound impact on just the enjoyment of the mechanics and therefore the game itself. Now, on top of all that, the game actually comes in a pretty small box. It is um, the same size as the Red Cathedral, another Devere game, if you know that one. It's about maybe half the size of a Catan box, I'd say, more or less, maybe a third-ish. And the game, last time I went, I went by my local game store, it was only $40. And for a medium to heavy Euro game that packs a lot of punch, this is just, I can't recommend it more to anyone that likes Euro games. That's the White Castle. Wow. That was a great pitch. I'm I'm very curious and on board. <laughs> yeah, the I thought the bridge mechanic was also so good. I don't know if it's innovative. Are there other games that use that bridge mechanic? Um, maybe not. Like, there's definitely games that you roll dice and you can draft the high dice and the lower dice, and then the higher dice are better value, but the lower dice give you bonuses. Uh, Pulsar, whatever that year is, <laughs> comes to mind. For, for that that whole kind of style. It's 2048. Okay, thank you. I can never remember the exact year. The bridge itself, maybe not quite, ex- you know, like, or the dice drafting, not exactly how it is in this game, but certainly very similar in a lot of other dice drafting games. Yeah, like, it's always, I, I played the game once. It is really hard to decide which side to draft from. <laughs> The fact that the bigger dice are free and give you a little, a couple extra dollars maybe as you're going, or the the bottom side lets you run your engine. I mean, those are just two really enticing. <laughs> like both both ends of the choice are highly incentivized. So it's just unless you you are like really flush with money, like you just have a lot of money for some reason. Or you built your engine to produce a lot of money. I guess maybe that's the way to go. But getting that is just huge. So I really, yeah, I really like the um, White Castle. Another thing I want to emphasize, which I really like about this game, is that the rewards or the action spaces for all three zones, the farmers, the castle, and the military, all have different rewards on them, and they all change from game to game. So the way you play or the tactics involved might change based on how that, that does affect the game a lot on how you go into it. Also, the cards in the middle will change throughout the game, and it is kind of random, so there is a bit of luck involved, but there's so much foresight into it. Because the cards in the middle, which I explained earlier, is how you you, you pick them up, and that's how you build your engine, but they're replaced immediately through the deck. So throughout the game, the actions are changing, but they're changing at a very uh, predictable pace, and adds a bit of chaos, but not enough to really throw off the game entirely like it's all about randomness but there's also adds more of an element of unpredictability to it that seems fair in a long story short the better actions that appear will be taken up by people first and you will expect that meaning you can plan for that action to go away and be replaced by something else 
as opposed to just hoping, you know, the actions you need are there. On your turn, you can kind of sense what's going to happen a lot better. So it adds that element of the game is never the same every time you play it, but in a way that I feel isn't, doesn't feel overtly random and pointless, like, or unpredictable. Oh, it was Pulsar 2849. You were close. You're only like about 800 years off. It's supposed to be a thousand years after the gold rush. Oh, I see. So 1849 was the gold rush, and then 2849 is a thousand years after. I did not catch that. That's interesting. I should revisit that game. I haven't played in a very long time, and it's some people really like it, and some people really hate it. Yeah. Um, but that's another topic. Anyway, that's um, that was The White Castle, a game I strongly recommend if you like Euro games. Yeah, that sounds cool. And, and just the way you mentioned at the end of like, how like the game, it's a little bit different each time. I don't know, I was, I was just starting to get Great Western Trail vibes, because I still love that game, obviously, and you know the three different areas and sort of juggling that balance and like i really like a game going into it where you don't really know what you're going to do you know what you're trying to do but you you really got to adapt to what's out there yeah yeah andrew what have you been playing recently so the big highlight for me was a game from kickstarter came in as well this is divinity original sin the board game uh made by the folks over at larian studios and i think one other one it's not like they were working with another group to actually make the board game so Larian Studios, the people who made the the big hit Baldur's Gate three recently. Before that, they made other video they made other video games, one of which was the Divinity Original Sin series, and then they made a board game based on that. So this is a campaign style. Oh, sorry, just uh, just to jump in real quick, just to clarify, the other studio is Ten Ten Studios. Wonderful, thank you, thank you, David. And I want to say that both Divinity and Baldur's Gate are excellent games. It's true, and I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to this review. Uh, anyways, I, I've played. I've had one play session so far. Looking forward to a second one, hopefully this weekend. It's a campaign-style, fully cooperative board game. For those of you familiar with Descent, it kind of feels like that, but just a much smoother process. And I think, you know, Descent or maybe even Gloomhaven, but like, I think Descent a little bit more so based on sort of how the enemies determine who to attack and how you do your damage and stuff is based on rolling dice. So the comparison to Descent feels a bit more apt. Anyways, what really impressed me about this game was how smooth it felt. And I say that in terms of the setup. So essentially, the, the sort of choose-your-own-adventure book is like the main board of the game, where it's like a nice illustrated book that sort of describes and sort of sets up each location for you. So the way it works, there's the book, and then there are little spots on the map. You pick out these, so as you explore the different locations on, on this location, put on these location cards and discover more about what's actually going on there. It really feels like Divinity, the video game, if you're familiar with it, in terms of both the flexibility of how you can customize and build your character, as well as the high sort of combo potential when working with your teammates in combat. But then Divin and but the, it also captures the exploration really well, I think, in that like the the exploration doesn't drag. And then suddenly as you discover things, it sort of just takes you in a potentially unexpected direction. Yeah, it doesn't drag, so each location felt fairly short. Like we, I was expecting each location to be like a bigger deal, given the depth and scope of the of the video games. They tend to be a lot bigger. They feel bigger, and because it feels like there's a lot of things going on at once. Is it safe to say that this game uh, feels more combat focused? I'm inclined to say no. So the, the combat is a big deal, in that like there's a lot of opportunity for fun and cool things to happen, and like. The combats are pretty tense, and that like, you really have to make each of your turns count, is the sense of it. But the exploration part has been very enjoyable, too. Just sort of moving along to the different parts of the map, the location in the book, and then just 
seeing what happens. Um, obviously, there's inevitably going to be a sort of back-and-forth kind of flow between the exploration and the combat, as is typical for these types of games. But so far, it's felt pretty good. I imagine as a board game, there might be a bit more emphasis on combat. Um, so like Baldur's Gate 3 has a lot more emphasis on exploration, I feel like. But yeah, it, it is very early, but I had a very, I've had a very good time so far. That sounds awesome. The uh, Board Game Geek has it tagged as a legacy game. I've had my own gripes about that. But not the t- I don't know if it applies to Divinity, but I have my gripes about the legacy game tag in general. But my question would be like, well, A, do you agree with that? B, if I were to play with you, would I be able to just jump into your game? Or would we have to like start a whole new one? That's a good question. Okay, so regarding the legacy tag, I don't think I agree with it. It's a campaign style game. It doesn't, the legacy doesn't make sense to me. That tag doesn't make sense to me. Okay. Two, regarding what you just said, so there is both campaign option as well as um i pledge at a higher tier so i think i I should look through it more but i think there should be a sort more of a combat only focused like one shot type thing where you're just sort of jumping in to do more combat so i like that's separate from the campaign um so at the very least we could do that if you wanted to play it is um in in the camp one campaign we have going it's only three players, so entirely possible for a fourth player to join in. I can check it, check it with my friends. And there's also enough stuff like the tutorial is completely separate, so like I can also show you that, but you know, tutorial is short and blah blah blah. We just wanted to jump in and I I don't have the game with me, it's at my friend's place, so I haven't looked thoroughly enough to figure out all those details of how easy it is for people to jump in and out. I suspect it should be doable because um the combats and stuff, they all scale based on how many players there are. Cool, sounds good. This game runs 1 to 4? Yes, that sounds right. And if you, if you play solo, presumably you'd be controlling two characters, I think. Maybe not, I don't remember. Anyway. Community says it's best at 2 or 3. For a game that's barely out. Um. <laughs> the community has its opinions very quickly. Yes. Not always accurately, just quickly. <laughs> I mean, that's that sounds like a gimme in these times of games. It sounds like a campaign slash, you know, like, explore um, style game like Mage Knight. And then all those games are, you don't want to play a max of four. It just takes too long between turns. And then you don't want to play solo because it's nice to have someone else there. So Yeah. Cool. Sounds good. All right. And that does it for games we've been playing recently. Let's move on to our review of Anachrony. Today, we're going to be reviewing Anachrony, uh, published by Mind Clash Games, designers David Turchi, David Aman, and Victor Peter. I think most people say Turksy, but I did look it up, and it's pronounced Turchi, according to the internet. <laughs> I knew I was going to mess it up, and I was like <laughs> nervous about saying it. Everybody understands seeing a designer's last name and trying yeah. to pronounce it. And I'm like, remember, it's C-H. Turkey. <laughs> All right, and that could be totally wrong. Maybe the maybe the internet's wrong, and Turkey pronounces it in a, like a family-specific way. I don't know. I haven't met the guy. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, okay. All right, all right. 
Anachrony. This is a pretty heavy game. Uh, the first time I think I played it was 2013? That's impossible. Is that impossible? Oh, it is impossible. It came... It, according, to B, according, according to BGG, it came out in 2017. <laughs> 2017? Yeah. <laughs> the first time I played it, played it, was at a uh, board game geek con. And did we go there 2017 or 2018? I thought it was 2018. I, I went both of those years. I don't know. If you, you went both of those years? I did. Because I've been... I can't help but feel that Paul's little flub earlier was very thematic yeah. <laughs> with the topic of the game. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I guess you could have played it in 2013 if you brought it back. <laughs> Time traveling. All right. Oh, you were there. Yeah, I played with David. Um, it was it was you, me, Charles, and Matt. I mean, no one at home is going to know who they are, but that's all right. Uh, I remember liking the game a lot right off the bat. I thought it had the best loan system out of any game i've ever played so the normal loan system is always uh is is usually money or whatever the base currency is base resource whatever it is this game has a you call yourself from the future i guess and then send something back to your past self to help you get things done and the thing you have to get done is get off the planet because the plants go blow blow up (laughs) so Instead of just being able to ask for money or resources, you can ask for people, you can ask for mech suits, you can ask for <laughs> any resource you want, uh, and water. Yeah, any resource, mech suit, and yeah. So, and I just thought that was, like, the coolest. It really kind of emphasized that every player could be in a different spot and have different needs and need different things. And instead of just getting one thing... You can get anything that you're using can be requested from the future, and then you give it to yourself. And the only trick is you have to give it back. You have to pay off that loan at some point and give it back to yourself. And I just thought that was great. I, fi- I find it funny in two ways. First is once you've requested something from the future, until you've paid it back, you're not able to request that thing again. And so the future gets fed up with your BS and is like, I already gave you a mech suit. You're not getting another one until I get that one back. Se- secondly, that's a good loan policy, okay? That's just a good loan policy. <laughs> it is a good loan policy. The future knows what's up and or knows knows what their past self was like. And they're like, we know, we know you. You're not getting a second one until you repay the first one. And then secondly, I also like how you're able to go into the future and get stuff, even though technically at the beginning of the game, you don't have the means, you don't have the way to pay it back. (laughs) You're not actually able to do it until you build a time machine. Oh, the power plant. Yeah. And and then go pay it back, but you don't have that at the time you take your first loans. You just your future selves are banking on your ability to create the ability to pay them back. And I also find that thematically funny. Yeah, not like it's such an active part of the game too, right? Like every round, you have the opportunity to take more and more and more loans if you if you want. I feel it's thematic in another in another, in another sense of like, oh, you're really trying to avert this crisis and. You fucking need everything. <laughs> You're just gonna keep taking more and more, and you know, hopefully, you'll figure out how to pay back later. But also, mechan- mechanically, it's highly encouraged because you get points for paying stuff back, which is like I guess brownie points, but they count as victory points. 
And also, you need to go back in time later if you're planning on building advanced tech in the future. You mean super projects from the past? Yeah. Yeah, the time traveling aspect is, is relevant in so many ways, right? Not just paying back loans, but like, oh, technology, you had the opportunity to research at the time, you couldn't do it. But if later on you go back in time to that time period, then you can research it. Yeah, which I don't get. Like, what happened to the ability to research that tech? It just <laughs> people forgot. Time travel is a tricky game. <laughs> I mean, the points for, for paying back the loans, again, makes sense, right? You're fixing the timeline, right? Making sure things don't go out of whack. So, uh, one of the consequences of taking too many loans is you could get too many anomalies, which can turn into paradoxes. Or is it too many paradoxes that turn into anomalies? I'll look that up and then, yeah. I think it's anomalies turn into paradoxes. It's the paradoxes turn, turn into... Wait, no, it's... Crap, I always get those mixed up too. Ah, just keep it. But anyway, you got smaller paradoxes and you got full-on realized paradoxes. Uh, the other thing I really liked was, and I haven't seen another game do it, is the building system. So in the game, there are four types of buildings. There are yellow buildings, which are power plants. They allow you to go backwards in time. There are gray buildings, which are factories. They produce various resources. There are blue buildings, which are life supports. You know, something you need in a dystopian future. They produce water, which is your base resource or currency. And there are red buildings, which are labs. They produce everything else. Uh, it ranges from straight victory points to uh, recruiting or cloning more workers or various ways to deal with paradoxes. Each building type has its own draw stack. And during setup, you take the top tile from each stack and put it into a discard stack. So there'll be eight possible buildings you can construct at the beginning of the game, two of each type. At the start of each new round, you'll take the top tile from the draw stack and move it to the discard stack. So if you build from the draw stack, you'll uncover a new building underneath it. And if you build from the discard stack, you'll uncover a old building from underneath it. And then you can obviously build anything that's showing. And I just, I don't know why I really like this system. It's so simple, but it just gives you sort of this like, oh, if somebody else builds that, I can get to the one underneath, which I missed. So it's almost like there's a limited window for you to build something, except maybe if somebody else does build the, the thing on top of it, you can get, get back to it. And there's just something I really like about that overall. I don't know why, but I've never seen another game do it. Yeah, it's like nothing's lost, right? No pieces ever lost, which is kind of cool. Just, get, just gets kind of buried. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the funniest part is when uh, something gets buried and you're pretty sure it's there, but you didn't take a note of it because you didn't care for it at the time. But then later something happened and your strategy has shifted and you're like, I need... A building that does that i think it's under there but i'm not sure <laughs> i don't remember exactly i should go back in time to my previous self and ask them those were the two things i really liked about the game the loan system and the buildings that go from a draw pile to a discard pile it is a cool system i'm trying to think of another game that does something similar and i really can't like there's extreme variance in the game in those buildings because not all buildings are made the same. There are clearly some buildings that are way better than others. Right. 
I like how that randomness creates a kind of this volatility in the game. Everyone's looking like, oh, is the next one going to be really good? And it also makes it interesting because the buildings are worth a varying amount to each player. Like, there are two building combos that are really, really strong versus uh, any given building being pretty good. Every round, you have to wake your people up by giving them water. And each, and if you do it consistently, your, the cost of water goes up in subsequent rounds. And there's a two-building combo where you build both of them. All the, all the cost for waking your people up is just free. And that's just huge. You've actually touched on one of the things I don't like about the game. Oh, yeah? I guess I can get into now. It's, yeah, it is. Like, I do like the randomness in the buildings because of the variability. I would, I do, even gripes aside, I do prefer it to a static set of buildings, which give you the same strategies each time. But at the same time, I'm not a fan of some of the randomness of the building order. Like you mentioned, some buildings are way better than others. So oftentimes, you'll be sitting there and you have no good options. So you just take you know, the best one, and then you'll uncover something that's way better for everybody, and the next person's just like, cool, I'll just grab that, and now you're left at a disadvantage through pretty much no fault of your own. I guess you could try to play some sort of weird chicken waiting game, but you don't even know what the next buildings are going to be. So the buildings are also random. I like to play with asymmetric powers and things. Sometimes you'll just get into a situation where the buildings are just better for other players than yourself. Um, just based on your asymmetries, and there isn't really much you can do about that. And so that's not that's the thing that's a part of the game I don't really like. Really? Okay. I guess we disagree here because I kind of like that that there's this chicken waiting game with it, and it becomes kind of like strategic in that you can build buildings that take an action as a kind of stall tactic because you can keep doing things on your own board until somebody else either passes or builds the the building you don't want and to, to uncover the thing you do want. Well, that's kind of the thing. I mean, you can only do that strategy if it's offered to you. You're not going to take a building that you don't want just for the stall tactic. It's got It's going to have to provide something for you as well, otherwise it's not worth building. All the buildings offer something. It just varies on how good it is, right? Yes, but there's... I mean, they offer something, but that something might not be useful to you. A lot of the buildings do, but there's especially like the end of game point buildings or um, certain other ones. Like it just may not be feasible for your faction or what you've done in the past to use that building. And at the same time, maybe there aren't any buildings that give you an action. It sounds like what they were saying that some buildings may end up just fitting into a specific faction strategy a lot better than whatever options are available to you. Yes, that's true, but isn't what you're describing just asymmetry? I mean, it's a given that the four factions have an asymmetric start, and then constructing the buildings increases the asymmetry. I mean, everyone's building your own engine, and you know everyone's engine is a little different, and you see which one does the best. I mean, that's, I feel like, the whole game. I think the idea that I like is that in the game system overall, there are reasons to race to something that's good, so people are competing to get there first. And there are reasons to stall and really control your timing and see if the other guy will pass first or build the thing that they don't want first. 
before you. Like, both things are in the game, so there's a real interesting push and pull with the timing. That's what I like about it overall. I do agree with that, and I do like the race to the big buildings. Super projects. Super projects, or just really good buildings from the base set that obviously everyone would prefer to get, which is definitely a thing as well. There is an element of playing chicken and hoping for something better. You're still just hoping for something better off of randomness. It's not like you're baiting someone to take a lesser option so you can get a better option. You're just hoping it comes up. And that's not really a thing I like in such a heavy game. Something that came to mind was that like this problem you're mentioning, which like I, I agree can be frustrating, right? But it's that's not a problem that's only unique to anachrony, right? Like deck builders often run into this problem. Oh no, of course not. It's not in a um, in a vacuum here. It's just, it's just one of the things I didn't like about the game, that's all. Okay. And yeah, I think the qualifier, oh, for such a heavy game, I think that's a that's a really good qualifier, because that's a common issue that may crop up in a lot of games, so cool, cool, cool. Isn't it pretty rare for all eight buildings to be not at all useful for any given player? Well, there's not always eight, because if the discard pile building is bought, it's not replaced until the next round. But that's, that's a point aside. Yeah, no, the with the options out there, oftentimes there's something that you'll want. It's just, you know, occasionally there isn't, and that just, that stings. Fair enough. Uh, so actually, one thing I really liked about this game is the worker placement aspect, funnily enough. Um, what I think is unique about Anachrony is that there's a much larger pool of workers you typically have available than in a more traditional worker placement game, like, say, Agricola, or even, like, Everdell, two games I enjoy, right? And yeah, it's it's also neat. Uh, so as Dave, uh, as Paul was saying earlier, that at some point you'll have to you have to use an action to get all your workers back. Essentially, they don't sort of come back at the end of the round, like in say Agricola. So it, it's cool that you know people's workers can be sort of right, everyone's going at their own pace with their workers, and there's such a large number of workers. You sort of have to balance which workers you want to use for your own, to activate your own like personal buildings on your own board, or to actually jump into one of these mech suits to go out into the into the world to explore and get more resources in other ways or take more powerful actions like building buildings for example i like that flow of how many workers there are and that it's it's a slightly different juggle than what you typically see in a more traditional worker placement game yeah it's also true like in in a traditional worker placement game like agricola you'll always want to there's no downside really to getting more workers other than you have to feed them, but in this this game that's not a concern. It is all it is generally better to get a ton of workers, but it's not necessarily the be all end all best thing to do because a you waste time getting them, and b the thing about this game that's most unique when it comes to workers is that there's three different types: four if you include the brain, and which type you get will affect what you're going to do and what you're more effective with in the future. And then there's also to correlate them to the buildings as well, several of the buildings and super projects require a specific worker. So now if you're more heavily focused on one worker or you just happen to be based on how things turn out, now you're going to want that synergy with buildings and or super projects that work with those workers as well. And that can really affect things. And that, that part of the game I really liked. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Right, the different workers. Some workers are better at specific actions than others, etc. Right, some actions they they completely exclude a specific type of of worker. So you even have to manage a little juggle there. It's good stuff. I wondered when the uh, designing the game and developing it, was it just the three workers? They have the engineer, the scientist, and the administrator, and then they figured out like, 
this doesn't work. We have to put in a wild worker. Otherwise, this game <laughs> is too hard. That's what I imagine happened. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Because that's also one of my minor gripes about this game. Is that, and it's super minor. Like, let's be clear. But I don't like the wild worker. Um, more specifically, I don't like the ability to get more wild workers. The, the wild worker in the game is they're geniuses and they can do anything. Any of the, uh, they have the ability to get all the bonuses from the other three workers. They can do anything the other three workers can do. And to be clear, there are some very specific exceptions, like costs for the super projects, or very. I think no, building all buildings can be done with brains. I think, but yeah, the, when a super super project has a cost of like a scientist, you have to use a scientist. You can't use a brain. Um, but other than that, pretty much brains are can be anything. You're not gonna call them geniuses. <laughs> You're just gonna call them brains. Because it's a big old brain, like <laughs> the, the symbol for the symbol form is a brain, and just <laughs> so just a, for, for our audience, the brain is the icon for the genius, and David refused to use the word genius, only brain. This doesn't come to mind because when I think about it, and I see the brain, I don't see genius, nor near brain. Anyway, but the, my gripe is like getting more brains. The system to get them is you go to the worker spot and then you can draft any of the workers. And they are random, so the brains aren't always available. But when there is a brain, there's no reason not to get one. Um, even the bonuses, you get, you get a bonus for drafting each type, and the brain lets you just pick uh, whichever bonus you like. So, like, it's just, it's literally a no-brainer. A, but it's just, it's just kind of, it dulls the... Um, it kind of dulls the strategy for me where you just always get the brain if it's there and not try to like really strategize what um, which type of work you need the most. Again, that's a very minor gripe, but it's something I felt like, like, like Paul just alluded to, maybe they just kind of threw it in later because it was too hard to balance. I mean, I can see that, but at the very least, getting the brain shouldn't get you a wild bonus. It should at least be some thought into getting it other than just... But again, that, that's very that's very minor, though. I must I must uh, point out. No, but it's a very relevant point. You know, honestly, I agree with you. And what I would have liked to see is if you take the brain, you get no bonus. Yeah, exactly. That's at least something. If, so you you know you take the base three people, then you get whatever corresponding bonus you get. But if you take the wild, the flexible guy, you get no bonus, and then it kind of incentivizes yeah. you. Or at least it has a drawback to taking the wild. And uh, there's a faction where their end game scoring bonus is has to do with brains. Uh, sorry, has to do with geniuses. Look what you did, David. <laughs> has to do with collecting geniuses. I I, I apologize. I apologize for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so they're increasingly incentivized to go in and get. Uh, geniuses in order to uh, fulfill their uh, endgame scoring bonus. <laughs> but yeah, you can... Um, I think you're right. The, it is a, like, very obvious that the, the, the genius is always strictly better, so... I would, I would have liked to seen it with no bonus, yeah. Yeah, and oftentimes resources can be pretty tight, so there would, like, there could actually be a downfall to taking a, a wild so it's it's definitely a safeguard to promote smooth play and cannot fault them on that. <laughs> That's important. So the next next part of the game is um, 
it is a worker placement game, and one part of the game I really like is the planning. When you start the round, um, you have to plan the number of mechs you're going to use. And for the most part, it's going to be a number between 1 and 6. But later in the game, it's going to be maybe down to 1 and 4. There are some asymmetrical powers to mess with it. In addition, you need resources to power all the mechs, and you need people. So um, you need to remember that uh, you need those resources as well. Otherwise, you'll have mechs just sitting there not being used, which is a big waste. Because also, for all the mechs that you don't use, you get resource bonus, usually water. And as we mentioned how tight the game can be, um, this decision on how many mechs you use can be essentially game-breaking. Not like game-paralyzing where you're just SOL for the whole game, but you can certainly crash and burn and hurt yourself by making poor decisions in the number of, work, number of mechs you choose each round. Yeah, it's a subtle but meaningful choice. And like the other thing, like even if you go ham and get like all six mechs, for example, early, like the the spaces where you can actually send these mechs is still limited, right? That's a worker placement game. It's limited, so it's even worth it to have all those extra actions if you're taking them to the sort of like weaker, generic, like infinitely available space. Yeah, and to be clear, there are two spaces that are unlimited. Or is it just one? It's it's two, right? The water, the water grabbing, and the and the trading. It's two. There's one space you can collect water, and then there's another space where you can trade, convert resources into other resources. Yeah, so you'll never be shut out like in some other worker placement games where you might be able to get a ton and the spaces fill up. Um, you will always be able to do that, but in general, those are not the most desirable actions. They're just kind of there if you need them. Um, but these these actions, though, include um, building buildings, which you mentioned, getting people, which you mentioned, and getting science, which we haven't mentioned yet. In addition to that, there's two wild spaces that cost water, and they let you do an action in those three categories that's already been taken up. So if all the building spaces are gone, you can go to the two wilds to take a building space, but you can't do that until all the all the building spaces are gone. And gathering resources. Like, not just water, but, like, the, the materials you need to, like, build mining, buildings mining. and superpowers. Oh, that's right. That's off on the side. Mining. You can't wild the mining. That's why I forgot about it, because it's off to the side. But, yeah. And the more expensive wild space is the how you get first player, which in this game can be very, very important. And I'll get into that a little bit later, because that's also another negative gripe I have. But it's also not... It's also positive, if that's weird. But we'll get into that. Sounds like you should get into it now. Unless Paul wants to say something else. No, because no. I want to get into the science. It's the last thing we've done. Science, um, what you do is, when you go to the science space, you'll roll some dice, unless you have a special card or something, or a special ability. And there's two dice. There's the science type, which is... Uh, there's theme, but they're basically triangles, squares, and... Circles? Yeah. And then the other die is the type. There's a little symbol in the, or that'll go in the triangle, circle, or square. Looks like a double helix. There's one like a, a radiation symbol, I think. 
or skull maybe. I'm making stuff up now, but there are four <laughs> there's four different symbols. Okay. It, there's also a people, yeah. People, yeah, yeah. Anyway, the combination so you get to set one of the dice and then you roll the other. So I could make sure I make I get the people symbol, but then the shape is random, or I could like make my shapes something specific like a circle, but then the symbol is random. And then um whatever you roll on the other die, you you get that token. It'll be um in this if I set the circle, I'll get a circle with whatever symbol I roll. Let's say I roll people. I'll have a people circle. And that's how you get science tokens. And you use these science tokens to build these super projects, um, which you mentioned earlier. They're like big buildings, basically. And the super projects always require a specific symbol and shape um, icon or like two or three of the same shape. The cost of most super projects is a token with a specific symbol and shape. So like watch square. The alternate payment is usually the other two shapes and no specific symbol. So in our example, watch square, the alternate payment would be triangle with a, with a question mark in the middle and circle with a question mark in the middle. The question mark meaning it doesn't matter what symbol is in the shape. And that's and also if you don't use the tokens, they're worth points at the end of the game. A small amount, but somewhat significant if it's a tight game. Uh, and that's that's science. If you take it back to one of those spots, you can roll for science to build these big buildings, which can be worth a lot of points or have a very interesting effect, which could be very, very useful. Or both. Some some do points and well, they're all worth points, but some are worth a good amount of points and have a good effect. They are super projects. They better be super. One of my favorite ones is get a mecha suit, which you can use after. So you could theoretically pull all six suits. Then after you use them, after you use one, use the super project that's a mecha suit to get a seventh one. But this, this does touch on one of my least favorite parts of the game, which is the science mechanism. I am particularly, I'm not against dice rolling as a whole, but when it can affect things to a pretty significant degree, which I feel these do, then I'm sort of against it. I don't like the set one, roll the other uh, randomly mechanism in this game, the way it's applied. Because like I mentioned, you need you often need a specific shape and a um, specific symbol to build one of these super projects. And if you just don't roll it, or you know, you you actually have a less than fifty percent chance of rolling it when you when you try for it, then um, to get what you need to build the projects. And then if you don't roll the symbol, you can then try to maybe get the like we said, just you already have like a circle now. You can just get another circle to build a super project because a lot of them require just two circles of any type. The thing is, though, most of these projects, if they have that option, the shape they use to build it, like the wild shape, is not the same as the specific shape with the specific symbol on it. So if you're trying to plan to build one of these super projects, you either risk it and you go for it, and then you have to like hopefully have a backup plan of some other project, which someone else doesn't want, 
or um, you just just go for the wilds, and then you have to go there twice um, to get it. And well, I I kind of get the whole risk reward kind of thing. I just don't particularly like it. What don't you like about it? Is it too random, or I don't like how it's it's too random. I could go there. I will try to get this project, and maybe I'll maybe I'll roll it, and now I have the symbol I need to build it, and I got it in one turn. Whereas someone else, if they're playing, if they're going to guarantee it, they have to go to the science base twice just to get it, what they need to build it. Furthermore, this has happened. Sometimes people will try for something, they'll roll for it, they'll get a total a thing they don't want or they didn't plan for, but that symbol happens to be the thing that I wanted, and then they face over and take the uh, thing away from me kind of thing. That just happened randomly. Although that's a very specific scenario. That shouldn't be like like the major gripe or anything. But I feel like the super projects take enough planning to get the resources to potentially go back in time and build and to have the space for them that having the one of the resources you need to build it be on such a kind of a random scale is not something I particularly enjoyed. It does. I do feel it fits with a theme, which is fun, actually. I do like that aspect of it. And it's nice if you have a situation where you can go for a specific, you can go for a specific super project. And if you don't roll it, which you probably won't, you can be like, oh, but I also want this one. I can go for this one as a backup. But that uh, correlation doesn't really line up all the time. Like, you won't always have a, a backup to go for. Um, all right. Honestly, I... I kind of like the science thing and how it works out. Um, so, for example, you know, you have some super project. Maybe it takes um, the time symbol and then a circle, a circle time symbol token in order to uh, build it. Then the subsequent alternate cost is random triangle, random square. So what I, how I approach it is basically I'll set the time symbol then let let then roll the other one and only have a one in three chance of getting the exact correct one if i get it great if i don't i'll get the triangle or the square and then in a subsequent round or maybe in the same round i'll just you know get the other shape like set set the shape and then you'll have the cost i thought that was a kind of presents three uh, reasonable possible uh, outcomes. One is you get it on the first try. Two is you don't get it on the first try, and you're guaranteed to get it on the second try. And then if you're competing with somebody else for the same super project, you know three basic things can happen. I could get lucky and get it first. The other guy could get lucky and get it uh, first. Or we could both miss, which is, I guess, statistically the most likely thing to happen, and then have to get the second one. And it, we're just racing for it. It just it presents some variability where the outcome is not easily predicted and not obvious. So what you do isn't always obvious. And that's really what I guess I value the most when the play is not always obvious in a game. But that's just me, I guess. That makes sense. I no, I definitely I definitely appreciate a little risk. I don't mind a little and I'm not like fully against the science system. I just Part of it is also, like, you mentioned the race part of it. It can be very frustrating if it's in a race. If it were just something you can get, and then, like, someone else can come along and get it as well kind of thing, that wouldn't be nearly as bad. But the race, the race, 
Yeah, because if you're if you're trying for it, let's say you go first, you try for it, you fail. Next person wants the same thing, they try for it, they succeed. Now they're going to beat you to it. That could be very frustrating. Whereas, you know, if you could just get it later, you're, you're set back a little bit, but it's not like... You don't have to completely adjust your plans. You don't have to, like, try to scramble for some second, you know, best thing. And also, um, it's just... I think the cost of the action is a lot for this kind of randomness. Like, each time you're doing this, that's a whole mech you're playing on the space. And which could be done for, like, building, getting more guys, getting resources, or even just some water. And the mech itself costs a whole... You know, it, you have to pay for the mech itself. I think it's, that's a high cost for, essentially, the difference of rolling once or rolling twice. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so I do... But I do like... I do like... I do appreciate what you're saying. I do like the, the risk and the... Variability. The variability. It ties in with the theme well, too. Yeah. I, I'd find it less enjoyable overall if it was the same predictable thing every time is my personal thought on it i like that there's some variability hey maybe you get lucky maybe you don't but even getting unlucky you have to go and get it again but you're pretty much guaranteed that second time around and then who knows if it's the second if you're splitting up the action between two separate rounds a new super project could be revealed and maybe you'll get lucky and you have the symbol for that and you know I don't mind that there's some variability there. I I don't always want to know the answer to the question. I I want there to be some mystery and something that some volatility there that produces different types of games. Like what do you do when you get unlucky? What do you do when somebody else gets lucky? What do you do when just that variability is much more enjoyable for me overall? Yeah, I can see that. I kind of wish there were some kind of um, maybe I'll, I don't maybe there is because. Like maybe there's a way to like balance the two a little bit more so it's still unpredictable, but it's not as it doesn't cost a whole extra action. Yeah, exactly. You could pay. A, you have like a system where you pay to set the second die. Uh, and some, I think, some asymmetric um, factions can do that, which is also interesting. Yeah, so one of the one of the miscellaneous buildings does it too. Oh, okay, nice. But like, yeah, let's get into that though, because that that segues into the other part of the game where you roll dice, but there is a um, alternative rule for that which makes it more consistent, and that is the anomalies slash paradoxes which you've been talking about. I'm gonna I'm gonna, gonna go I'm gonna go with the anomalies are the small ones and the paradoxes are the big ones. I hope that's right. If it does make sense, but if it's not right, sorry. <laughs> but either way. Um, so what we didn't explain is for all the building types, there's four building types, on your board you have um, four rows, and in each row are three spots for those buildings. The spots themselves have costs on them, so when you play the building, you have to pay the extra cost. But that's kind of a um, that's just an aside. Um, but that does mean that you can't just hoard um, one type of building. You can have a max of three. Um, I do like that. It it adds more, makes you be a little more careful about the types you need instead of just buying. Um, Instead of just buying exactly the type you need each time, you might want to wait a bit and get more efficient of each type because you only have a max of three. Um, that being said, when you borrow stuff, as we explained earlier, and you haven't paid it back, each round you roll a die for every loan that you haven't paid back because these are the anomalies. Basically, this little time travel thing of yours shouldn't really exist, and um, some problems are arising 
based on the fact that you've stolen from the future. You called it a loan, but I'm calling it stealing. Anyway, if you, um, every time you, every, for each of these things you roll, you can roll a 0, 1, or 2. I don't remember the distribution on the dice, but I think it's mostly zeros and 1. It, it's 1, 0, 1, 2, and the rest are 1s. The rest are 1s. So you have a, the majority of the time, like a 4 out of 6 chance, 2 out of 3, 66% chance you'll roll a 1, but you could roll a 0 or a double. The point is, though, once you collect three of them, or four if you're Andrew's faction, which he was that one time, you will stop. You don't roll any more, so the max you can... You can fill up to three, but that's it. And you will get a Paradox. The Paradox is a building-sized card that goes on one of your building spots. And it is worth negative points at the end of the game, and it's going to cost you resources and a person to fix it if you wish. You don't have to fix it, by the way. You can just leave it there, and it'll be points at the end of the game that you lose. Yeah. But Three points at the end of the game. Right. However, in creating this paradox, you also don't have to pay back one of your loans anymore, and you remove it from the board, which is a very, very creative way of paying back your debts, which I, wor- wish, worked, which I wish worked in real life, too. Let me give you a giant bill so that you don't have to pay back this, this debt. Yeah. Oh, it got sucked into the void. Sorry. <laughs> I guess. And then, and then, I guess the future is okay with it. <laughs> but anyway, but you do have a paradox, which you can obviously pay back as well. But you know, sometimes it's advent- advantageous to get these paradoxes to pay off your your back loans. Um, in addition, yeah, there's a specific faction. You can't leave the planet without getting two paradoxes. <laughs> oh, interesting. In addition, for uh, all intents and purposes. That spot that the paradox fills up is considered filled. There are some um, leaving conditions or other things where you need to fill up a whole row or cover up X amount of spaces. Those paradoxes count, even though they're negative points and they generally suck. So, um, so yeah, I, I really like the whole system of adding paradoxes and the balance there. The thing I don't like about is, of course, the rolling dice for the paradoxes, especially because some, like you said, some clans really rely on these paradoxes showing up. And of course, you're, you're definitely likely to happen if you just get a bunch of loans. But, you know, just having... It, it's possible the dice could screw you and you really don't have what you need just because you rolled, like, unexpectedly. Um, but, like I mentioned, there is a, a deterministic rule variant you can play where each loan is worth just one. Uh, regardless, you don't roll dice, it's always one which is the average anyway. So, you know, that's that's an easy fix if you really don't like rolling dice like for this like I do. Um, so that's why it's really just a minor minor gripe in a sense. I do also, I will point out as well, just like the science, I do think that rolling dice is more thematic and kind of more fun in a way, uh, even if I don't like the randomness, just because, well, it's an anomaly. It's the fabric of time. You, it's kind of unpredictable, right? You need a randomizer to get your random thing. <laughs> exactly. So it does. It, it sucks. It sucks for uh, factions that rely on it to a degree. But other than that, I, I honestly think it's fine. It's just a minor, minor gripe. Uh, oh, the paradoxes always have to go on your cheapest available build site, build spot. And then if there are multiple, ch- like tied for cheapest, then you can choose. 
It always has to go on the cheapest. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. I, th- I thought it was just the right and most one. Always the cheapest, yeah. It's meant to be bad. Wait, it's always your cheapest? We've... I think this, it's the same for Super Projects. I think we were playing... Yeah, of course. I, think, I thought we were playing right to left, so... Cheapest will be le- left to right, won't it? Cheapest is left to right. Yeah, interesting. Okay, that's, that, is a game, that is a game changer. Oh, no, I was playing... That's right. No, I remember now. I was playing... A, a clan that lets you place the paradox wherever you want. That's why. That's why this didn't come up for me. <laughs> and I think also when we're playing with uh, Matt at BGGCon because we were we learned the game as we played it. I think we did that. I think we did that wrong as well. But learning learning this game at a convention is with four people is probably not recommended. <laughs> um, I guess. Well, I guess while I'm I guess while I'm being negative, I'll touch on the final thing I didn't like about this game. And that is the limited amount of building spaces makes the game, for me at least, makes the game kind of deterministic. In that, I feel like this this is just a general strategy thing. It's not like there might be situations where this changes, and especially not in the first round where you don't have resources. But I felt, in general, the best thing you want to do, unless you can't, is build a building. I see that. Because of that, let's say in a three-player game, there's, well, the building space is always the number of players minus one. And then there's the two wilds. So in a three-player game, there'll be two building spaces and two wilds. You always want... The first two people will almost always take the two building spaces, unless they can't for whatever reason, or they really, really want to do something else. But for the sake of argument, you'll take the two building spaces, then the next person will take the one of the wilds, and the last person will take the last wild, and then there's no more building. I do feel like building is that important, and that tends to be what happened. In addition... The person that took the first wild will usually take the more expensive one so that they will go first in the next round and therefore will be able to build two buildings. Unless, of course, someone, unless they run out of resources or whatever. And again, this is kind of a minor complaint, but again, with the, sci- the science being the way it is, the people and the, well, the resor- resources are important because you need those to build building. But I feel like the science and the people in general are a little less important. Um, and thus, there's a gigantic focus on building buildings. While this this isn't a pure negative in terms of just if everybody knows that's kind of the deal, that's just how the game is and you got to plan around it, but I didn't really like how deterministic that part of the game is, especially in the later rounds when things are a little more fleshed out. Yeah, it makes sense. I don't I don't think I can have anything meaningful to add to that. That was it. That's all I had to say. Yeah, like what would you prefer instead? Like that's it. I mean, like I mean that's that's one of the things. I'm not sure I have a solution exactly at the top of my head. I'm not like as good a designer as uh, Turkey is, but like, just I guess maybe if the other actions were a little more, I just felt more important or more more of a priority, then there'd be more of a choice in this regard. Again, I don't necessarily think it's bad. It makes it feel more scripted. A little more deterministic, yeah. Okay, I agree. Like. I think building buildings is probably the most important part of the game, or the most advantageous action, because a really good building, like, changes your whole game. There's a particular power plant that lets you go back in time twice, instead of just once. And if you build that, you pretty much don't have to keep building power plants, which is huge, right? Like, it's one tile is basically two power plants and you can repay two loans every round instead of just one at a time without any further costs i mean that's just huge so there's definitely an emphasis on building it's just i'm not sure like like how would you get around that is there a better way no i'm i'm 
I don't know if there's a better way. Uh, that would take a lot of planning, and like you'd have to adjust all the things. And it's, again, it's not necessarily a bad thing. There's a lot of games that are just focused on a thing. Like for example, Lost Ruins of Arnak, which I really like. Some people are like, "Can you can you win this game without going up the temple?" The answer is no. The game is designed around going up the temple. You can do other things, but you got to go up the temple. That's the the game. And in this in this respect, I feel like the game does revolve around buildings. If you really like, if you want a point salad game where you can kind of do whatever you want, just go off, then, you know, maybe this isn't quite for you, because you, I feel like you do have to build buildings, and it's very focused around that. Now, that's not a bad thing, but, you know, I just would like, if, if it's possible, which, you know, it's, it's nice when a game gives you more options at the end, but, you know, this one is focused around the buildings, and so... That's just what it is. I mean, I feel like recruiting is really important for three reasons. One, there's often a competition. Whoever has the most workers gets bonus points. Two, recruiting is one of the easiest ways to get power cores, which lets you power your mechs when you recruit the engineer or genius. And three, there are just so many games I've been short on workers. Like, I have enough buildings to do, what I, to, to do things, but I don't have enough workers to do all of them. So I have to pick and choose between which buildings i want to activate so i just feel like if you fall behind on recruiting workers that's like a big deal too that's true and i have um modeled some future turns but this is like based on opponents i'll be looking at them will be like i don't think they can build two buildings on their next turn or things like that so maybe i don't have to worry about you know getting the first player exactly and yeah there are there are other factors it's just I don't know. Well, the games I play tends to be the focus, and that's just, again, that's just what it is. Yeah, I wonder if you can build, like, half as many buildings as other people and still how well you'll do. Well, there is one bonus for most most filled building spots, so if that's out, then that's much harder. Oh, yeah, that's that's something we haven't touched on is, uh, so there are bonuses at the end of the game that differ each game. They're all kind of, not race format, but have the most of something format. And they do, um, they do affect, like, and like they are important to go for. Um, not sacrifice your whole game over, of course, but like they are important to consider, and that can definitely change the way the game is played. So if that also that also may affect things, if some of the bonuses are or none of the bonuses are building focused, um, that might change things. But at the same time, no, that's just that's just one of many factors in the game. The game is complex enough that. This is why it's just a minor gripe to have. Actually, it might even be a relief to have a building focus for some players because then they'll be able to easily have a strategy that you know they can follow, as opposed to trying to consider way too many factors. All right, components. You know, I own this game, and I recently got the uh, the mecha suits figures for it, and they're pretty sweet. <laughs> So the original base game just comes with hexagon tiles, and then you put your worker on the tile, and that represents your mech suits. And then later they came out with really cool actual figurines that have the, a coin slot on top, which you can slide your worker in to actually uh, use the figure on the board. And I saw this set that was painted for like a hundred bucks, and I'm like, oh, that's too expensive. <laughs> I was like, oh, don't get it, man, don't get it, because. I think it was so expensive because they included a case for them, which was, you know, pretty nice and blinged out. 
All right. Uh, speaking of costs, the original retail price for this game seems to be was eighty dollars, but I looked around on eBay for it, and the average cost seems to be around one hundred and twenty. Oh my god! This game is not easy to get, and or if if they have the suits in them, then it's definitely worth it. Like you undersold those those suits. Um, obviously, if you're um, they're they're pretty big. So if you're one of those players that doesn't care about miniatures, it may not be your thing. But the action spaces for the mechs are unnecessarily huge. And like if you don't have the mechs, you're just like, why are these spaces so big? It's ridiculous. But if you have the mechs, you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, this this is why. And it's not unnecessary anymore. This is awesome. So the, the $120 price might be because the set includes the mechs, the, the miniatures for the mechs. If it includes the miniatures, I think that's cheap. So what I was going to ask you guys, you guys feel like the price is worth the game? So $80 without mechs, 120 with mechs. I'm going to lean no, but that's because I am stingy. <laughs> so David thought the $120 price was cheap with the mechs? With the mechs. $80 is a lot for not mechs. Honestly, the mechs do add a lot to me. This game, I do, I mean, we'll get to our ratings later, but I do feel like this game is very good. But the price tag is dependent on whether you're going to play the game. This is a heavy game. There's a lot of things to think about. There's a lot of downtime between as people consider their turns. And, you know, but it is a very good game, in my opinion. All right, let's go around and give Anachrony a final rating. For those of you who don't know, our rating system basically answers the question, how many plays is a game really worth? This is measured in three ways. One, how replayable is it? Two, how many plays does it take to reach a fundamental mastery of the game? And three, how willing are you to play the game over and over? In other words, how fun is it? So I should point out a caveat for me is that I, I've only played I've only played this twice so far and both played it online on Board Game Arena with you too. So right, not playing in person physical components that you know that that can definitely influence the experience. Having said that, overall, I do enjoy it. I think I'd probably put it about in the five plays range, five to ten for me. Like, I think I'd be happy to play this again. But from what I saw, yeah, there's cool stuff for it. And it's not fair to say that I figured out. I definitely haven't figured out. I've gone last every single game. And, you know, maybe that's part of the bias, too. But it's like, yeah, this, this is enjoyable. It's cool. It just didn't quite grab me. But it's, this has also been a few months since we last played. Would play. Probably worth playing if you have access to it. I wouldn't say go out of your way, too. But the loan system is very good. I actually agree with Andrew quite a bit. I think five is a reasonable number, but in terms of like, be like five play. If you're an experienced player, it'll be about five players or so till you really get this game. And if that's all you want out of a game, then that's when you'll shut it down. But there's enough replayability. There's enough different factions. There's enough, you know, with bonus content and other things to play this game quite a bit, like 15, 20 times ish. But in terms of like really getting it, five, five, five to eight sounds about right. I'd probably give this like. Maybe 10 plays? I, I give this 10 plays. I kind of explored the game and kind of figured out various parts of it kind of slowly, I guess. Because I definitely, at the very least, there's the, the raider spot, which is where you go trade with the raiders. And you can, you can basically convert any resource into any other resource. And if you use the administrator, you can trade twice. And I didn't realize how useful that was until a little later into the plays i was kind of undervaluing that spot for a while and then um i realized you could 
you could build a lot of gray buildings, produce just a lot of cubes, and then keep use, using the cubes to convert into other things like power cores or neutronium or water. Yeah, whatever you might need. Even though the unlimited spots aren't great, they're actually still pretty useful. Depending, It really helps you share up whatever you're short on. Yeah, that can definitely be a lifesaver. That's true. Also, I, agree, I agree for the most part what you're saying. I did rate it a few less plays, but there are definitely a lot of things that aren't obvious. Little pitfalls, little boons that you can find playing this game, for sure. Do you guys want to close with some final thoughts on it? Well, despite all the gripes I brought up, I really like this game. I feel like it's pretty well polished, and even with some of the randomness there's, and the limited amount of spaces, there's a lot to explore within the space. And there's a lot of complex and difficult decisions during the game, which keeps me coming back to it or keeps me thinking about it long after I've played it. This is, this is kind of a staple of all the Mind Clash games in a well, way. I've played uh, Tricarian as well. That one's even more complex than this one, in my opinion. But we're, we're focusing on this game. I think this game is kind of the... I think it's the most popular Mind Clash game, and for a reason. Some of their later stuff has gotten a little too complicated or too weird. This one is does have a really cool theme. It does have some interesting elements, but it's definitely grounded in the worker placement format. It really keeps it, well, I guess grounded and prevents it from going way too off the rails. Again, if you're, if you're not a fan, if you don't like heavy Euros, you know who you are. Obviously, you want to avoid this, but if you haven't checked this out and you like Euros, like heavy Euros, it's definitely one to seek out and play. Andrew, why do you go ahead? Yeah, for me, I'd say yay loan system, yay worker placement elements. Yeah, I really like the game. I think it does have the best loan system. And I kind of like some of the smaller random elements. They're pretty small, so they're not game-breaking. But at the same time, it produces some meaningful variation in the game that really needs to be considered. So uh, I like the variability. And yeah, I'm just bored of always taking loans for money. This is just not that interesting. But this where, you know, you've built this engine and maybe your engine is short on this particular thing and you can use the loan system strategically to shear up your shortcomings just is just great. I can't think of another game that does it like that. You were right um, about the mechs. They really do um, make the game a lot cooler. A lot more fun. I wish I was more into painting to actually go ahead and paint the the mechs myself, but the reality is I do not paint very well and I wouldn't know what to to do with them. I think the game's a little bit on the expensive side, but worth the price. Man, you undersold those mechs. They're so massive. They're fun to just put on the board and just the slot. You did mention the slot at the top you put your guy in. It's just uh, chef's kiss. Let's just put your little dude in the mech and just send him out there. I do think that this is... uh, Mind Clash's biggest title, uh, and that's solely based on the number of expansions this game has. It has a giant amount of expansions, and they even came out with a was it Fractures in Time expansion that what that adds a whole like new layer to it. But there are these expansions, and they have sort of their modular game board pieces that add a new like place for you to go and do stuff at, and it's just huge. Yeah, I don't think any other game has as many expansions as this game. At least not for Mind Clash, that's true. There's there's quite a lot. There's also something called Anachrony Chess, which came out in 2021. It has nine ratings on BoardGameGeek. I don't know what the hell that is. But you go you go into the future and take a pawn off your board later and then win the, win the game here. And then later you're like, ah, oh, damn, I'm down a pawn against the, 
it's probably just play chess with the uh, the figures. Anachrony, by the way, just for reference, is the highest rated uh, Mind Clash game. It's 47th currently, as of time of recording, on Board Game Geek. Whereas Tricarion, surprisingly, is 99th. I didn't think it would be that high. It's in the top 100 for now. I just didn't think enough people had played it to... Oh, really? It has a following. It does, it does have 10,000 ratings, but, but Anachrony's number one, top 50 at 47. Let's see, Cerebrios, 7.8. It is... 840. <laughs> okay. I guess uh, we'll see how Septima does, because that's the newest Mind Clash game that just uh, shipped. 7.6 currently with 1.3 ratings, but we'll see. Like, it needs more than that. It's currently rated 1,852 second, but it, it just came out. I actually own Cerebria. I'd like to try to play it, but it is it's pretty out there. Yeah, that's like a team-based game. It is. It's team-based. Although you, can, you can just play one versus one if you want to play a heavy game where each person controls two people but yeah it's team-based it's very weird it's it's hard to grasp and like i haven't been able to convince people to play it's another game on your giant shelf of shame <laughs> yeah although this one's a little more understandable i feel like the shame is everyone else that won't play it with me hey the board game geek um entry for it has it at one to four players but I thought this game went up to six. Yeah, Cerebria. Doesn't it go up to six? It's been a while since I read the rules, to be honest, but it, I thought it went up to four. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're supposed to play two versus two. I don't know how you play three player. Maybe three is not, it says one to four, but three is not really an option. It's probably like you have the one player plays a neutral and helps both sides kind of thing. Oh, maybe. Because there is a role for that, I think. And I, I know the six player, I guess, expansion lets you play three teams. It must be something like that because in the the poll here, ten percent say it's best at three, sixty percent say it's recommended, and about thirty three percent say it's not recommended. That's um, sixty eight votes. So it sounds like it's playable at three, but it's best at two or four. Not recommended at more than four. Let's go ahead and move on to the game show. For today's game show segment, we're going to be doing real or not real. David, you're going to be hosting this one. I am. I am your glorious host. These are our contestants, Paul and Andrew. The game is Real or Not Real. It kind of sounds like Deal or No Deal. I didn't really come up with a good name for this. It's just if it is a real game or not. Essentially, the rules are very simple. I'm going to just stay a board game, and then individually they're going to decide whether they think it's real or not, and then they're going to say, and then I'll reveal if it is a real game or not. And if you get it right, you get a point. Okay. If you don't get it right, you don't get a point. Pretty simple, right? And just to give credit, I got this list of games from uh, Sporkle.com by a user named MSU Kent. So if you have any problems with any of these game names, blame that guy. Are you all ready? I'm ready. Sure. All right. Is Blood Bowl a real game or not? Real. Real. Yeah, real. You are both correct. Well done. Blood Bowl is actually one of my favorite games from my past. Kind of the game that got me into board gaming. It's in your top five. It's not in my top five. I don't think it's that good a game, but like I remember you talking about it before. Oh yeah, I talked about it a lot. It's it's a you know, they can make a whole league around it. It's a really good game, but like it's not there's there's definitely some problems with it. There's it's heavily luck based, et cetera, et cetera. But very fun. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Um, next game. Is Dingo Bingo a real game or not? Okay, Paul? I'm gonna say no. I'm gonna say yes. It is not a real game. Oh, I know, right? I want it to be, but it is not, unfortunately. That is a point for Paul. He is now up two to one. Is Ghettoopoly or Getopoly a real game? Andrew, what do you think? 
I'm I'm gonna say yes. You think it's real, Paul? I'm gonna say yes. You are both correct. It is indeed a real game. Excellent. Pretty much made a monopoly of everything at this point, haven't they? Right. That one made the news. Oh, did it? I did not know that. When it came out, it was considered pretty offensive. Oh, oh for sure. Wow. Oh, for sure. I think it came out, what, early 90s or something? I guess the game itself, maybe like some of the property names or something might have been offensive. I don't know. I'd have to see it or look into it, which I'm not going to. Is Chicken Cha-Cha-Cha a real game or not? Paul? I think it's real. I think it's real. Yeah, I think we might have all played this game, in fact. I think I've played it, but I'm pretty sure I've seen it. This is like the Kanitia game where you're trying to be like in the middle, I think. I haven't played it. Paul, do you remember? It's not designed by Kinezio. Like you play, you play a number, you play a number, and then like whoever's in second place wins. Anyway, if it's what I'm thinking of, it's it's, it's actually a good game. One of those quick Kinezio, you know, numbers games. Anyway, is I was thinking of a different game then. Oh, that's Chicken Ladder, isn't it? Yeah, the ladder thing is Kinezio. Yeah. Okay. Well, Chicken Cha 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 is probably a kids' game then. Anyway, all right. The next game is. Thesaurus Rex. That sounds funny. I'm going to go off-brand. I'm going to say no on this one. You don't think it's real, Paul? I'm going to say it's real. All right. Well, the correct answer is it's fake. Yes. Andrew has a point for that one. Back in the lead. And by back in the lead, I mean Hi, yes. lead. All right. Is the hell game. Hell game is one word, by the way. Is the hell game real or not? Yikes. That, like, the title, the name of this game sounds terrible enough that i feel like it should be fake and yet that just seems like appropriately joking enough that it could be real i'm i'm gonna say no fake okay i'm gonna say real let's say real wow shows uh, your moralities there paul but also your correctness because it is a real game uh, if the game the game could be a game then the hell game could be a game <laughs> that's true i believe i've i think i've seen this game in like thrift stores or something I could be very wrong. It just could be a bad memory, or just a one of those like I will it to be a real thing. Anyway, oh, I don't even want to ask this next one. Well, I'll do it anyway, just for completeness' sake. Is Kill Doctor Lucky a real game? It's real. Real. Yep. Okay. I don't have to go over that one. That's too long. Yeah, that sounds right. <clears throat> Pretty sure we've all played this together. Have we all played this together? Well, I've at least played it with you, Paul. I'm not sure if I played with Andrew, but I think I think we have. It's probably not me, but I know I learned it from someone, and that someone might have been y'all. Actually, it might be someone else I'm thinking of. Probably all played it at a game night, but you know, it, it's hard to remember exactly who played. Anyway, regardless, definitely a real game. The next game, Primordial Soup. That sounds fun enough that I'm going to say yes. Okay, Paul? Yes, that's real. Paul, do you even own this game? No, there's a copy of it at Eudaimonia. Oh, okay. Which doesn't exist anymore, but... Yeah, it used to be... It was in German, it was called, like, Usurp or something? Like, U-S-U-R-P... I don't know how to spell it. But, um, yep, definitely a real game. And a renamed game. Alright, is Cannibal Quest a real game? Also one word, by the way. Huh. Cannibal Quest. Well, the Q is capitalized, but... Oh, one word. Somewhat, this seems the mag enough someone would do it. I'm gonna say yes. Okay, Paul, what do you think? I'm gonna say no. Paul, you are correct. No one has made this game. Okay. As far as I know. Although, maybe after seeing this quiz, they might. Who knows? All right, Andrew, we're going to need to come back. Yeah, I'm way behind now. Dear God. But for whatever psychological advantage it will be, I'm going to ask Paul to answer for the second half of the quiz. To answer first, sorry. All right, Paul, first, is Kooky Kooky Carpenters a real game? By the way, yes, all three words start with the letter K. 
Cookie Cookie Carpenters a real game? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yes. Is that a real game? Wow. Uh, I'm gonna say no. No? Okay. Andrew? I'm gonna say no as well. You are both correct. No one would have the audacity to make kooky kooky carpenters <laughs> have them all <laughs> the same. It's not the same letter that's the problem. It's the K that's the problem, really. All right, let's continue with the next game, and that would be the really nasty horse racing game. Is the really nasty horse racing game a real game? And if it is, how nasty is it? Um, I'm going to say it's real. Think that's a real game, Andrew? I'm going to say it's not real. Oh, Andrew, you're just digging yourself a bigger and bigger hole. No way. It is a real game. No way. wonder what's nasty about it. They probably roll a die when you're next to each other and you can hit the other jockey or something. No, I want to play it. We'll look into it later. Next game is Hey Paw! There's a goat on the roof. A real game. Exclamation mark after Paw. Hey Paw! There's a goat on the roof. I'm gonna say real. That's a real game. Well, all right, Andrew. It's very tempting to say it's real. I'm gonna be contrarian. I'm gonna say no. You gotta stop doing that, Andrew, because Paul <laughs> just oh. knows his games. Apparently. Have you played this, Paul? It sounds just silly enough to be, like, a kid's game. No, it's true. It's true. I was trying to say yes for exactly that reason. Like All-time best game with a stupid name? Who stole Ed's pants? Anyways. I don't think that's stupid to Ed. Hmm. If you saw Ed, you might disagree. <laughs> that's a good point. Anyway, the next game is Yank It with an exclamation mark. Yank It? Yeah. Kind of like Bop It, except... It's got the word yank. Huh. Uh, I'm going to say real. That's what I was thinking. Real game. Andrew? Not real. Not real. Oh, finally. It's worked out in your favor, Andrew. It is not a real game. Yeah. Not a real game. Okay. Bop it. I'm pretty sure it literally has yank it as one of the options. You can't just make yank it. I think it's pull it. No. It's not yank it. It's pull it. Yank it would be a little, little obscene based on the terminology. All right. The next game is Stump the Nun. A real game or not? I hope that means, like, confusing or confounding a nun, as opposed to turning it, a nun into a stump. <laughs> I haven't played the game, I don't know, but have my ideas. Anyway, Paul, is that a real game or not? That is a tough one. I'm going to say fake. Okay. Andrew, what do you think? I'm going to say real. Andrew likes being contrarian, but worked out last time, not this time. It is a fake game. Oh. Maybe having you go second wasn't the best idea. <laughs> well, it is what it is. Well, I'm not, like, intentionally being contrarian. Right, right, of course. I was pointing that out. Yeah. I, I don't think you're changing your answer based on what Paul does. Still, if you were, it's a bad strategy, because Paul is just on a roll. Yeah, that's very true. Missed two so far, I think. All right, is Jinkies, Velma's Monster Mystery, uh, exclamation mark after the Jinkies, by the way. Is that a real game or not? Real. Real game? Andrew? I'm saying it's real, too. Well, you're both wrong. Ah. <laughs> they made it up and added flair. To make it sound more Scooby-Doo-like. They do have Betrayal at Scooby-Doo. That is, that is what got me. I was like, oh? Like, I'm, not very, I'm not very familiar with Scooby-Doo, so I, I didn't realize. Uh, I say, yeah, it does sound like a real game. And Scooby-Doo properties are everywhere, so it makes sense. But in this case, it was just a diversion. They got me. And they got Paul, too, which is very tough. So. That's what matters. All right, the next game is Crash, the bankrupt game. Mm-hmm. Exclamation mark after the crash. Crash? The bankrupt game? I'm going to say real. Crash the bankrupt. I, I, I'm going to say real. You both say real? You're both right. Yeah. Sounds like you're both getting good at this game. 
Personally, I would go for Crash the Bandicoot game, but that's not real. Wow, that's a throwback reference. A little bit. Although, not too bad. A new game, new Crash Bandicoot game just did come out in 2022, I think. Maybe 2021. Uh, Crash Bandicoot 4. Pretty good game, if you like that kind of game. Is Stilts and Kilts. Is that a real game? Yes, it's a real game. Andrew? It sounds real enough to me. It's real. It does sound real, doesn't it? And that's because it's fake. They just totally leaned into the Scottish theme. Uh, that is good enough for me. <laughs> and did a rhyme. <laughs> that's good enough for me. No, it's it's like if someone wearing a kilt was using stilts, you could look up their kilt. So really, there's some uh, hilarity in there. This is true. Well, does that mean Scottish people are never on stilts? I don't know. It feels like it feels simple enough. Like we could make this game very easily. We'll just take any Knizia game and slap this theme on it. Boom, done. Doesn't have to make sense. All right, next game is Dance for Your Life. Is that a real game? There is an exclamation mark after life, so it's Dance for Your Life, or is it? I don't know. It's some kind of excitement. Anyway, Dance for Your Life. Dance for Your Life. Is that a real game? I'm gonna say fake. Fake game. Andrew? I'm going to say fake, too. Oh, you're not going to catch up to Paul by just agreeing with him all the time, you know? But also, you're not going to fall further behind because you're both correct. It is fake. Yeah, that was, like, too generic. You know? That was my feel. A little bit. Also, like, that's that'd be a weird board game. Also true. Like, oh, man, I've got I've got two fox steps and a, <laughs> and a fox trot. I hope I can survive. It's Twister, but with stakes. Ooh, now we're talking. All right. Is Mall Madness a real game? Yes, Mall Madness is a real game. I think it's real too. You're both correct. I actually remember seeing advertisements on the television for this game. Wow! And they just have they have a new like electronic Mall Madness with a little credit card you can swipe. It's the mall with it all. I think you're using the word new kind of loosely because I think that's from at least 20 years ago too. Well, it says new on the box. Okay, I'm not changing my statement. I believe my statement is correct. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, is your statement on whether or not the game Squatter is real or not correct? Uh, that sounded so much better in my head when I started that sentence. I'm going to say it's fake. No squatters here? Andrew, what do you think? Uh... If you said no squatters here, I would have said that's a real game. <laughs> <laughs> no, just squatters. Just squatters? No, I'm going to say fake. I'll say Squatter's real. Congratulations, Andrew. You have answered the last one correctly. No way. Squatter is real, and that's all that matters. That one was worth 45 points. I did it. I'm still the champion. Yeah, pretty much. I'm still the champion. That's what I'm hearing, right? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but for reals, though, uh, Paul, you got 15 correct. Andrew, you got 12 correct out of 20. And so the winner is Paul. Oh, uh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, good game. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, I mean, they're just ones that uh, sound real, but aren't. And some of them are just kind of old, and you would think, like, oh, either you kind of know it or you're guessing. There's actually a lot, like, some of them are gimmies because they're actually kind of famous, but, like, some of them are real, like, head scratchers. Like, Primordial Soup? Like, that one's pretty, like, obscure nowadays. Yeah. That's true. I think Blood Bowl might even be a little more obscure, although most people seem to know it because it has connections to um, Warhammer and all those games, too. But, like, Mall Madness? I'm pretty sure people know that one. I mean, they had ads for it for a while. And... 
I wouldn't have known of that one if I hadn't seen it in places like at the cafe. But some of them definitely got you. Uh, Stilts and kilts, J- Jinkies, Velma, Monster Mystery, and Thesaurus Rex all kind of felt very real to you all. Yeah, it's all list. If we try this again, I'll try to make up some of my own and see how that goes. Yeah, that'd be fun too. That'd be fun too. That would be fun. Just go for like IP games and really, really, really crank on the cheese. <laughs> be interesting. Just because, like, you know, we went over it. There's like, who stole Ed, Ed's pants? And hey, Pa, there's a goat on the roof is a real game. You could do some really interesting <laughs> wordplay with these things. Anyway, that was our that was our game show segment. Congratulations once again to our new champion, Paul. And we'll see if he can defend the belt next time. Until then. Until then. Take care, everyone. If you're listening on YouTube, please like, comment, and subscribe. If you want to continue the conversation with us, you can do that at our Board Game Geek Guild Impromptu Board Gaming Podcast, guild number 4233. Or if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please email us at impromptuboardgamingpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, impromptuboardgamingpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you guys next time.